Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome privilege of being at this camp meeting. Oh, Father, what a joy it has been to open your holy word and be comforted by the scriptures. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. Our beliefs and our lives are based on the solid foundation of your word. We ask that as we study about the second coming of Jesus this evening, that your Holy Spirit will be with us to guide our thoughts, to open our hearts, and to give us the ability to share what we learn. We thank you, Father, for being with us, for answering our prayer. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. About six months before the death of Jesus, he had traveled to the northern border of Israel and had actually gone a little beyond the borders into Lebanon to a town called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is at the foot of the majestic Mount Hermon the tallest mountain in the Holy Land, snow-capped, where the River Jordan actually originates. And there in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus gathered his disciples together because he had to share with them a, a truth that would shake them to the core. Turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16, and we will begin reading at verse 13. Matthew 16 and verse 13. Jesus first asks his disciples gathered together what I might call an ice-breaking question, a preliminary question, if you please. And that question is found in verses 13, and the answer by the disciples is in verse 14. Jesus asked, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Notice the name that Jesus gives himself. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then comes the answer of the disciples. So they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now that Jesus had asked this preliminary question, this general question, he asks a more pointed and specific question. And that question in verse 15 says, But who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, who appeared to be the spokesman for the disciples, who many times put his tongue in fourth gear before he put his brain in first gear, had an answer. It's found in verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Basically, Peter was saying, you are not only the Son of Man, you are what? You are more than the Son of Man. You are the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the anointed 
you are the Messiah. Now, it's interesting to notice the answer that Jesus gave to Peter's confession. It's found in verse 17. You see, Peter did not even understand what he was saying. What came out of his mouth was revealed directly to his mind by the Holy Spirit. He did not understand what he was saying. It's kind of like Caiaphas. He says, one man must die to save the nation. Well, that was true, but it's not the way that he intended it. So sometimes the Holy Spirit inspires people to say things that they, they, even they don't understand. And so in verse 17, we find these words. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood, by the way, that means human wisdom, mere man. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, these words that you spoke don't come from your mind. These words that you spoke come by a direct revelation of my Father in heaven. He placed this thought in your brain and it came out of your mouth. Peter did not understand what he said. Let's go to verse 21. We'll come back to some of these verses later on that we're skipping. Verse 21. Now Jesus shares with the disciples a shattering truth. In verse 21 it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. In other words, Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem. My, my face is to Jerusalem. And there I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be crucified. And I will resurrect the third day. And of course, Peter, when Jesus spoke those words, because Peter was expecting an earthly kingdom, he was expecting Jesus to destroy the hated Romans and place the Jewish nation once at more at the apex of civilization. Immediately, Peter rebuked Jesus. Imagine that. Verse 22. Then Peter took him aside. You can almost imagine Peter taking him by the sleeve. Took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter was saying the Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah doesn't suffer. The Messiah sits on the throne. He subjects all of his enemies. And he places the Jewish nation at the very top of the world. How is it that you say that you must go to Jerusalem and you must suffer and you must die? And he kind of didn't even notice that Jesus said, be raised the third day. Notice what Jesus did. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, by the way, he wasn't talking only to Peter. Peter was the instrument of, in the hands of Satan. 
It was Satan that was attempting to distract Jesus from going to the cross. It says there in verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Now do you notice the contrast in that verse? Jesus has said to Peter, Flesh and blood, human beings did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he revealed this great truth to you. But now Jesus says to Peter, listen, you're of men. What you've said shows that you're of men. You're not of God. So let me ask you, did Peter understand his confession? He did not understand his confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Going forward a little bit more, Jesus made a very perplexing statement to the disciples. It's found in verses 27 and 28, which was our scripture reading for this evening. We're going to come back to the verses that are between uh, verse 23 and verse 27 a little bit later on. But Jesus makes this perplexing statement. They're still there at Caesarea Philippi. He states, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And then comes this perplexing statement. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here among the disciples, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Did all of those men die before the second coming of Jesus? Yes. So what did Jesus mean when He said, Assuredly, He said, I'm coming in the glory of the Father with the angels to reward human beings, and then he says, and there are some standing here, some among you, the disciples, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The answer is in the very next chapter. You see, after Jesus said that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and resurrect the third day, Jesus and the disciples began the journey towards Jerusalem. Ellen White describes the, the, that trek of Jesus with the disciples. For six days, Jesus walked ahead like was the custom of the rabbis. The disciples walked behind with their heads down, filled with anxiety, depressed, with dire forebodings because they were moving towards Jerusalem. And Jesus had said, I have to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. It's like they never heard that Jesus says, said, be raised the third day. They heard only suffer and die. And Messiah doesn't die. And so for six days, they're walking behind Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, depressed, filled with anxiety and dark forebodings, because they did not understand what Jesus said. How is it that Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer and he must die 
And yet, he also said that there were some there that would not die until they saw Jesus coming in his kingdom. How do you reconcile those two ideas? Was what the disciples thought. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1. This verse is very important. It is the only verse in the Gospels that tells you the amount of time that passed between one event and the next. The only time in the Gospels where you have an event that says so many days passed and then you have the next event, which means that what happened in chapter 16 is connected with what happens in chapter 17. And so in chapter 17, we find in verse 1, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Some. How many were there listening to Jesus? Twelve. How many did Jesus take to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration? Three. Those are the some. Jesus had said, some of you will not taste death until you see Jesus coming in his kingdom. Not all of the disciples, some of them. The some are Peter, James, and John. And so it says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. It's believed that perhaps this is Mount Tabor, very tall mountain between Jerusalem and Caesarea Philippi. You see, Jesus knew that his disciples were very heavy-hearted. He knew that they were perplexed at what Jesus had said about his suffering and his death. And so he knew that the disciples needed encouragement. He had seen that they were depressed. He had seen that they were discouraged. That they were confused. They didn't understand what Jesus had said. The, their, the view of the Messiah that Jesus presented was not the view that they held. And so Jesus said, I need to encourage these men. And so the Father leads Jesus up to the top of this mountain. Now you might ask, why three? Why would it be Peter, James, and John? There's a special reason. Go with me to Matthew 26. Keep your place there in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 26, verses 37 and 38. This describes the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is sweating great drops of blood, and he's begging his Father to, if it's possible, to take the cup of the wrath of God from his hand because he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath because he was bearing the sins of the whole world. Who were the ones that were closest to Jesus and could hear and see the agonizing of Jesus? These three. These three needed special encouragement when they saw Jesus agonizing in the garden. They needed to be encouraged. They needed to see the transfiguration to know that after the suffering would come the glory. It says there in Matthew 26, 37 and 38, 
And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. This is in the garden. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, that is to the same three, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus knew that these three disciples were going to be closest to him. They would hear his agonizing. They would see him sweating drops of blood. And that they needed to remember that after Jesus spoke about suffering and death, that Jesus had said, that some there would not die until they saw the Son of Man coming in the glory of His Father. They needed to be encouraged. And so Jesus took some, the three, who would see His most profound sufferings to the top of the mount, which is known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And verse 2 tells us what happened at the top of the mountain. It says, And He was transfigured. Let me ask you, what voice is that verb? Any English buffs here? Passive voice. He did not transfigure himself. He was transfigured. Who transfigured him? His father. Everything Jesus did on earth was in harmony with his father. So it says he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured is very interesting. In the Greek, it's the word metamorpho'o. What word do we get in English from metamorpho'o? Metamorphosis. Jesus went through a metamorphosis. What is a metamorphosis? You know, for years I collected butterflies when I was a kid. I became quite proficient and professional at it. Not only... Not only catching them, but mounting them and classifying them. You know, I became a full-fledged entomologist. And I was able to watch the development of a butterfly from beginning to end. You know, first, the butterfly, you know, first of all, the mother butterfly lays eggs. Then those eggs break out, a little, little worm, little caterpillar comes out, eats from the leaves of the tree where the eggs were laid, grows into a big caterpillar and then the caterpillar attaches itself to the wall or some other place and weaves a chrysalis or a cocoon around it and then after a short while the cocoon starts shaking violently and the cocoon breaks open and lo and behold not a worm comes out but a beautiful butterfly there's been a radical transformation. That's the word that is used here. Jesus went through a metamorphosis, if you please. And notice the description that is given here. It says there in verse 2, His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as the light. You read Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is described in those terms. The glorified Jesus who is in the heavenly sanctuary after his resurrection. So in other words, the disciples saw Jesus as he will be seen when he comes in power and glory with all of his angels. The sum saw Jesus as he will come in his kingdom with all of his holy angels. 
But the story doesn't end there. Now the disciples, they're watching this, they're saying, wow, he said he was going to suffer and die, and now he's transformed like he's going to look when he comes with all of his holy angels, like he said. That's one encouragement, that after the suffering, after the cross, there was going to be the glory. But there's more. Notice in verse 3 that the Father sent two individuals to speak with Jesus. Verse 3 says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. So Moses and Elijah are sent from heaven to talk with Jesus. What was Moses doing there? Go with me to Deuteronomy 34. I mentioned this yesterday. I didn't read the verses, but let's read them now. Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6. Speaking about the death of Moses, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And now notice what it says. And he buried him. Who buried him? God buried him. That's the antecedent. It says, He buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. And lo and behold, 1400 plus years later, he is on the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened? Oh, we read it last night. Jude 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Michael the archangel, the resurrecting angel, has power to resurrect, came to resurrect Moses from the dead. That's why he came to talk with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Ellen White in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 478, describes the battle there at the grave of Moses. I read, For the first time, Christ was about to give life to the dead. As the Prince of Life and the Shining Ones approached the grave, Satan was alarmed for his supremacy. With his evil angels, he stood to dispute an invasion of the territory that he claimed as his own. He boasted that the servant of God had become his prisoner. He declared that even Moses was not able to keep the law of God, that he had taken to himself the glory due to Jehovah, the very sin that had caused Satan's banishment from heaven, and by transgression had come under the dominion of Satan. The arch-traitor reiterated the original charges that he had made against the divine government and repeated his complaint, complaints of God's injustice toward him. So he disputes the right of Michael to resurrect Moses. But Michael resurrected Moses and took him to heaven. Because the Bible says that at the Mount of Transfiguration he came down from glory. So the first person that comes to speak with Jesus is one who died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. But there was a second individual that came to speak with Jesus. Elijah. Elijah's 
end in this world was different. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Here we find what happened with Elijah. Why would Elijah come from heaven, from glory, to talk with Jesus? Well, if he comes from heaven, from glory, he must have gone there. When did he go there? Notice 2 Kings 2, 11 and 12. Then it happened, as they, that is Elijah and Elisha, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind, where? Into heaven. And Elisha saw him, saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. Elijah was translated to heaven without seeing death. And so you have these two individuals, Moses who died, resurrected, and ascends to heaven, and you have Elijah who did not even go through physical death, and he's translated to heaven without seeing death. Now both of these translations happened in the Old Testament, didn't they? Did Jesus have a legal right to take them at that moment? Was Elijah a sinner? Was Moses a sinner? What is the only thing that could save them from sin? The blood of the Lamb. But the blood of the Lamb had not yet been shed. Legally. The promise, yes. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. But the devil argued, hey, they were sinners. They're mine. Until you pay. So Jesus took them to heaven actually before he made a payment for sin. Legally. Now here's the big question. What were Moses and Elijah talking about with Jesus? Matthew doesn't tell us. But Luke does. Go with me to Luke chapter 9 verses 30 and 31. Luke chapter 9 verses 30 and 31 tells us what the topic of conversation was. You see, Jesus knew that he had to go to Jerusalem. He knew that he had to suffer. He knew that he had to bear the sins of the world. He knew that he had to die. He knew that he was going to resurrect. He knew it was going to be an agonizing experience. He would sweat drops of blood. He would have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus knew all of that. It was going to be a severe, terrible trial. Notice what they talked about. Luke 9, verse 30 and 31. And behold... Two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now that word decease, what, what had Jesus said he was going to Jerusalem to do? He was going to die, suffer and die, right? Now that word decease, could be better translated. In the Greek language, the word decease is the word exodos. What word do we get from exodos? Exodus. 
Let me ask you, what marked the deliverance of Israel at the time of the Exodus from their literal taskmasters that had them enslaved? The sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And so Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus and they're saying, you know you have to go and you have to die like the Passover lamb to deliver us not from literal taskmasters but to deliver us from the curse of sin. And they're saying, go for it. You were transfigured. Your father's happy with you. Go for it. And I don't know if they said this, but they probably would have said, if you don't go, we have to get a round-trip ticket. (laughs) We're going to have to come back. Just think of all of the redeemed. Those who die and are going to resurrect and go to heaven. Those who will be alive and remain when Jesus comes. Just think of the result of your work. Go forward. These two individuals who had had tremendous battles in life. And by the way, Elijah represents the end time generation. I wish I had time to get into that. You know how many enemies Elijah had? An adulterous woman, a wimpy king, and false prophets who did the bidding of Jezebel. Do we have the same trio when it comes to the New Testament Elijah? Who's the New Testament Elijah? John the Baptist is the New Testament Elijah. Have you ever read about the death of John the Baptist, the New Testament Elijah? He's not an Elijah in person. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Did he have three similar enemies? Was there a wimpy king? Herod. Was there an adulterous woman who was committing adultery with the king? Herodias. Did Did this adulterous woman have a daughter who did her bidding? Absolutely. And at the end of time, and I'm just synthesizing, at the end of time, there will be a threefold power. The dragon which represents Satan working through the political powers of the world, the beast, which is the same as the harlot of Revelation 17, and the false prophet, which are the daughters of the harlot. They will be the enemies of God's people at the end of time. So it's significant that God had Elijah come because he represents the end-time generation who will be alive in the most trying period of human history. So they were talking about What Jesus was going to do in Jerusalem to die as the Passover lamb. His exodus, if you please. In early writings, page 162, Ellen White explains God chose to give the followers of Jesus strong proof that he was the promised Messiah. That in their bitter sorrow and disappointment at his crucifixion, they would not entirely cast away their confidence. Because they would always be remembering. Ah, Jesus said, there are some here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Ah, we saw Him transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. There must be something beyond the suffering and the death. Let's hang in there. She continues saying, God chose to give the followers of Jesus strong proof that He was the promised Messiah. That in their bitter sorrow and disappointment at His crucifixion, they would not entirely cast away their confidence. 
as at the transfiguration, the Lord sent Moses and Elijah to talk with Jesus concerning his sufferings and death. See, there you have it. Instead of choosing angels to converse with his son, God chose those who had themselves experienced the trials of the earth. Peter still didn't get it. Because now in verse 4, Peter makes a suggestion. He says, it's not good to go to Jerusalem. Let's stay here. <laughs> Notice, verse 4. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's stay here. Let's not go to Jerusalem. He wanted the glory without the cross. But that's not the only way in which the faith of the disciples was, these three disciples was strengthened, and the faith of Jesus was strengthened to go forward. Let's read verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Basically, what was happening there is that besides Jesus being transfigured, besides Moses and Elijah being sent to encourage Jesus and the disciples, now the disciples hear the voice that the Father is pleased with Jesus and they should listen to him. So they say, even though we're somewhat confused about how the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory relate to each other, we have enough evidence to hang in there. So how was the faith of Jesus and the disciples strengthened? Number one, first because Peter confessed Jesus. That was a strengthening experience to Jesus. Secondly, he was transfigured by his father. Third, Moses and Elijah were sent confirming that Jesus was doing the will of the father. And finally, because the father's own voice said that he was pleased with Jesus. Now there are four lessons that I want to share with you from this story. Four lessons related to the second coming of Jesus. The first lesson is that the transfiguration is a promise and assurance of the second coming of Jesus in his kingdom. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 through 17. Now, this is a passage that we read last night. It's a passage that describes two groups at the second coming of Jesus. What are those two groups at the second coming of Jesus? Two groups of saved people? Those who what? Who die in Christ and those who are alive and remain. Let's read the passage. Verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, that it means in the same way, God will bring with him, we'll come back to this verse in our next point, will, God will bring with him 
those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. We dealt with that last night. And with a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. How many categories of saved people? Two. Those who die in Christ and are resurrected. And those who are alive and remain. Do you know what we have on the Mount of Transfiguration? We have a miniature kingdom. We have Jesus who is going to come. And the dead who will resurrect represented by Moses. And those who will be alive and remain represented by Elijah. Allow me to read you a statement that we find in the spirit of prophecy. Desire of Ages, page 421. Ellen White wrote, Moses upon the Mount of Transfiguration was a witness of, to Christ's victory over sin and death. He represented those who shall come forth from the grave at the resurrection of the just. So what does Moses represent? Those who will come forth from the grave at the resurrection of the just. Then she speaks about Elijah. Elijah, who had been translated to heaven without seeing death, represented those who will be living upon the earth at Christ's second coming and who will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. When this mortal shall have put on immortality and this corruptible must put on incorruption. Jesus was clothed with the light of heaven as he will appear when he shall come the second time without sin unto salvation. For he will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Savior's promise to the disciples was now fulfilled. Upon the mount, the future kingdom of glory was represented in miniature. Christ the King, Moses a representative of the risen saints, and Elijah of the translated ones. And in the book Heaven, page 102, Ellen White referred to Moses and Elijah and Jesus as a miniature representation of the kingdom of the redeemed. So the first lesson that we gather from the transfiguration is that at the end there will be a resurrection of all of God's people. And all of the living saints who are faithful will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air, to be taken to heaven, like were Moses and Elijah. The Mount of Transfiguration, in other words, promises that Jesus will come again and he will take all of his people home, represented by Moses and by Elijah. The second lesson that I want us to learn from this passage is that people will not go to heaven when they die or at a so-called rapture. Now where does the rapture theory come from? There are several texts that Christians use to teach a rapture. Before we go into that, let me just mention that uh, most Christians, if not all Christians, 
believe that when a person dies, they go to heaven, if they were in Christ. If they were outside of Christ, then they go where? They go to hell. They go to burn in hell. So the big question is, if the righteous go to heaven when they die, what is Jesus coming for? You know, their argument is, well, you know, he actually, when he, he takes the spirits of the redeemed to heaven, and then he comes back and he joins the spirit to the body at the second coming. The main text that is used to defend the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 and 14, which we already read. Let's read it, and I'll explain how this is used and how we can explain it to people. It's not that complicated. It says there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, what, where did Jesus go after he rose again? Even though this passage doesn't say it, where did he go? He went to heaven, right? So in other words, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, what does even so mean? In the same way. In other words, what happened with Jesus is going to happen with whom? With his followers. So it says, even so, God, who is God? Who is the person that is called God here? God the Father. Very important. God will bring with Him. Who is Him? Jesus. God will bring with Jesus those who what? Those who sleep in Jesus. They will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now here's the thing. People capture, they say, well, you know, God cannot bring with him at the second coming if he didn't take them to heaven before. Are you with me? But where they get it wrong is the even so. The even so says as Jesus died and resurrected, and by the way, we know the Bible says that he was caught to God and to his throne, right? That's in, in Revelation chapter five, 12, verse 5. says, he was caught up to God and to his throne. So Jesus died, he resurrected, he was caught up to God and to his throne. Even so, God's people who die in Christ, they will die, they will what? They will resurrect, and God who is in heaven will bring with Jesus those who slept in Jesus. He's not bringing them to the earth. He's bringing them from the earth to heaven. You know, there's this tradition among Adventists that when Jesus comes, the Father is coming with him. Mm -mm. The Father will remain in heaven when Jesus comes. Acts chapter 3 says, He shall send forth Jesus. And here's a statement from Ellen White. See, this helps us understand these verses. Are you understanding how this ver these verses are used and what they really mean? Listen to this statement. Review and Herald, September 21, 1886. Ellen White explains, We are saved because God loves the purchase of the blood of Christ. 
And not only will he pardon the repentant sinner, not only will he permit him to enter heaven, but he, the Father of mercies, will wait at the very gates of heaven to welcome us. Are you with me or not? To welcome us, to give us an abundant entrance to the mansions of the blessed. And there's a beautiful parable that illustrates this. And we usually forget the last part of the parable. The parable of the lost sheep. You know, we use that to say we need to go after the people who go astray from the church. Yes, it has that application. But it's not the, it's the, not the big picture. The big picture is the 99 sheep that are safe in the fold represent the worlds that never sinned. Now, there's not 99 worlds. The parables use round numbers. It's like there's not only going to be five people saved and five people lost. Five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. The numbers just round it off. So you have the worlds that never sinned, the 99 that are safe in the fold. You have one sheep that went astray. That's this planet, planet Earth. And the shepherd leaves the, the ones in heaven safe and he comes down to a dangerous world to seech, seek and save this world which was lost. Now listen carefully. This is the part that many times we forget. It says there that he takes the sheep and he puts it on his shoulders. And he brings the sheep home. Where is home? Heaven. And he calls all of the neighbors. And he calls all of the friends. And he says, come folks, let's celebrate. The sheep that was lost has been found. That's the celebration in heaven. When the Father welcomes God's people, the entire universe will be present there to give a welcome to God's people. What an explosion of praise that will be, folks. Don't miss it. There's nothing in this world that's worth hanging on to. There's nothing here that's better than what we're going to have up there and in the earth made new. People say, oh, but I have a good house, Pastor. And I ask, is it made of gold? I say, well, Pastor, you know, I've got a very nice Mercedes. I've got a very nice BMW. Does it fly? Can it take you to different places in the universe? No. There's nothing in this world, folks, that is better, that even is faintly in comparison with what God has prepared for those who love Him. So let's not get attached to the things here. And so are you understanding this verse? The parallel. Jesus died, resurrected, caught up to the throne. Even so, those who died in Christ, they died, they're going to resurrect, and God will bring with Jesus them to the Father's house. That's the way we need to understand this text. Because a comparison is being made between Jesus and His people. That's the second lesson. The third lesson. The Word of God is more trustworthy than our senses. Many years after this episode, the Apostle Peter reminisced about it. 
What he said is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And by the way, I'm reading from the NIV. Some people say, oh, how, how dare you read from that apostate version? I've had people say that. Let me just make a parenthetical statement about Bible versions. I love the King James Version. I believe it's an excellent translation. I believe that the Textus Receptus is an excellent group of manuscripts. However, I don't believe that the King James translation of the manuscripts is always the best translation. In other words, the King James translation is not inspired. It's the manuscripts that were inspired. And so sometimes we have passages that are expressed more clearly in more modern versions that don't contradict, by the way, what the King James Version says. And by the way, even the King James Version uh, translation has mistakes. For example, in Daniel it says uh, that the little horn took away the daily sacrifice. The word sacrifice isn't there. And there are times when the King James is better than modern translations. For example, Revelation 10, all modern translations translate that there would no longer be any delay. The King James is the only one that has it right. That time would be no longer. Prophetic time. So we need to be, we need to be practical when it comes to using Bible versions. So anyway, I'm reading from the NIV. This is chapter 1 of 2 Peter, beginning with verse 16. He's rem reminiscing about what happened on the mount. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw it. For He received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came from, from, to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. What Peter is saying is we saw it and we heard it. But then he's going to say this is not the most trustworthy witness. Because he continues saying in verse 19, And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. More certain than what? Than what your eyes and your ears tell you. What is more trustworthy, the testimony of your eyes and ears or the testimony of Scripture? The testimony of Scripture. So he says, and we have, uh, have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, folks, in the end time, we're not going to be able to trust our eyes and ears. Because Satan is going to counterfeit the second coming of Jesus. He's going to look just like Jesus. And he's going to speak some things that Jesus spoke. Matthew 24, 23 to 27 tells us, Then if anyone says to you, Look! Here is the Christ. Or there. Do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Ellen White describes in Great Controversy 6, 24 and 25, this counterfeit second coming. She calls it the almost overwhelming or overmastering delusion. Those who follow their eyes and ears will be deceived. In fact, she uses expressions such as the glory that surrounds Satan is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have yet beheld. She refers to him as having dazzling brightness. She describes his voice as, as soft and subdued, yet full of melody. She even says that he will heal the diseases of the people. And then she says this will be the almost overmastering delusion who follow the testimony of their eyes and their ears. How is it that God's people will not be deceived by what their eyes and their ears say? Because the Word of God has two details which contradict what your eyes and your ears are saying. In those pages of Great Controversy, Ellen White states, the people of God will not be misled. The teachings of this false Christ are not in accordance with the Scriptures. As they read. And then she says, besides that the teachings that this false Christ is giving are not in harmony with the Scriptures because he's going to teach that Sunday is the day of rest and that God is offended because people don't keep Sunday. She gives a second re reason. Satan is not permitted to counterfeit the manner of Christ's coming. The Bible tells us how he's going to come. The Savior has warned his people against deception upon this point and has clearly foretold the manner of his second coming. This coming there is no possibility of counterfeiting. It will be universally known, witnessed by the whole world. The testimony of the Word of God is more trustworthy than your eyes and your ears and your feelings and your emotions. We live in a world where people go by their emotions. It can't be wrong if it feels so right. Put your feelings aside and do what God says in His Word. You'll always come out on the right side. Fourth and last lesson. In the very middle of this passage, we skipped some verses. Now, we're not going to talk about Peter and the rock. If you want, if you want a whole presentation on Peter and the rock, in this series that I did several years ago called Mary the Mother of Jesus, I have an entire one-hour study on Jesus saying, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. But I want to go to verses 24 to 27. Then Jesus, this is after he's ta talked about going to Jerusalem and dying and suffering. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The last lesson is that there is no glory without carrying the cross first. There is no kingdom of glory, there is no heaven until we trace the footsteps of Jesus in suffering, unless we have fellowship in his sufferings. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul stated, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we carry our cross, we shall reign with him, is what Jesus is saying in this passage. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And the final verse is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. And our hope for you is steadfast, is what the Apostle Paul has to say. Because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. So be thankful to the Lord when you suffer. You're saying, Pastor Boy, are you a masochist? No. See, when we suffer, we are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. We're sharing in the experience of Jesus. Suffering is not meant to break us. It is meant to make us. Because in suffering, we develop dependence upon Jesus. We experience what he experienced to a much lesser degree, of course. And so Jesus was teaching his disciples, listen, I've got to go suffer and I've got to die. But after suffering and dying comes the glory. And so you must bear your cross after me. And then if you bear your cross and you suffer and you are faithful, then you enjoy the kingdom with me. So folks, this passage is giving us the assurance of the soon coming of Jesus. What a day that will be. Are you looking forward to that day? Yes. Praise the Lord. I can hardly wait. Then we won't have to deal with extreme cold and extreme heat. No more lake effects, no. <laughs> it will be perfect weather in a perfect world with a perfect Lord. Father in heaven, we wait for that glorious day, the coming of Jesus. I ask, Father, that you will help us not to become attached to this world, the things that are vanishing away, the things that ultimately will be consumed by the brightness of your coming. I ask, Lord, that you will be with each soul gathered here. Carry us through our trials and our sufferings. Help us to remain firm and our faith to grow in the midst of trials. And Lord, prepare us for that glorious day when Jesus will come in the clouds that we might be able to say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Thank you, Father, for having been with us, for answering our prayer. We ask it in the precious name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.